everybody has a take on this shipping of migrants to Martha's Vineyard and Kamala Harris's house. I'd like to bring some biblical worldview to that. Plus, I recently got to talk to some college students. I'll tell you what we talked about on this week's Corey Truax Show. I'm just right about it, but I don't know that we've had a fully-throated biblical analysis of the story that has been shared and talked about from every angle. For whatever reason, it really did capture the attention of the American people and news media, and I could end up being slightly wrong, and I'm open to correction. So let's get to it, and if you think I do get something wrong, you most certainly can email Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com, or find me on all the social media. Just look for my name, Corey Truax. You will find me there. Actually, on that realm, my quick story, and then I'll do our normal intro. It was recently Constitution Day, and I, you probably know I love the U.S. Constitution. I, I think I have a, a proper respect and value of the country. When it falls apart, it won't break my heart because I'm from another country, but what a cool place. It's conquered, it's conquered a lot, did a lot for the world, conquered a lot of poverty and all the worst parts of humanity. This is a good system that invited a lot of other people from around the world here. And what, in part, what made it possible is the governance that the constitution gave us, that constitution largely built on some biblical thinking about human nature. So I recently put out on Instagram, if you if you don't, I mean, on, on Constitution Day, do you think this is the greatest governing document in human history? And my take was yes. And if you don't think it's the best governing document in human history, then what is? And my big brother chimed in with the Torah. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I saw it because it's so true. The Lord actually did set up a government and had a governing document. And the best governing document ever is the one the Lord gave. And so then in second place, I think, based on a lot of the things we learn in the scriptures, you get the Constitution of the United States. What I'm saying there is, I'm open to correction. Welcome to the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts, among other things. I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood, Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings. We have returned to our Revelation series. You are invited in just because you're, I don't know, 60 sermons, 50 sermons, into it doesn't mean you can't catch up. There's a lot of good stuff there, and I uh, hope you will if you're without a church home in the upstate of South Carolina. Here are the facts. We have a real problem at the southern border. Best we can tell, it's 8,000 people per day cross the border trying to get into the United States. It's likely more than that because there are gotaways and there are people that we don't actually ever track. We find now that the same way that the Border Patrol is using drones to try to monitor this very long border. I saw a story in the New York Times recently that the drug cartels are doing the same thing. They now have they have drones in the sky with cameras. Consider how cheap they are now. You can get a drone on Amazon for less than $1,000, and these coyotes and the drug cartels are finding when certain parts of the border are not covered, when they know they have hours to do a given operation because they can tell for miles and miles and miles away there is no human resource. So even if a camera catches them, they can still get away with it because they know the resources to respond to them are too far away. And so we have a major problem on the southern border. It primarily is going to affect the border states. So Texas and Arizona, of course, New Mexico is also a border state. And then I would, I mean, after that, you're going to affect 
states that already have large Hispanic populations where people are going to join with their subcultures. That's California and Florida. In response to this inundation at the border, largely caused by federal government policy, let's just say it out loud, by policy and stance of the Biden administration, some governors of those states started shipping those humans, those human beings, those made in the image of God, started shipping them around the country. At first, it was just two very liberal cities. New York City, Chicago, and D.C., placing directly in front of the people who support the policies that cause the problem, it's placing the problem right in their face, saying to the mayors of New York City and Washington, D.C., and New York, uh, and New York City and Chicago, this, this thing you all support about having just a really open, porous border, you guys really aren't feeling the full effect of the problem, so let's put that right in your face. And then recently, there was an escalation of that strategy. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida put 53 Venezuelan migrants on a plane and sent them to the very posh and tony vacation spot of the rich and powerful Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Further, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, sent some large number of migrants to the Naval Observatory. That's where the vice president of the United States, whoever it is, lives. And so right on, uh, right now, Vice President Kamala Harris's door doorstep was hundreds of it seemed maybe maybe it was around a hundred people trying to enter the country and entered the country illegally those are the facts of the case so those are the facts now here's the reaction on the right i noticed there was laughing at the troll job of course it was a troll i don't think sending people to new york city and to chicago to dc into centers and population centers, and also money centers. You, th- you think about the little towns, the border of Texas, Gowansville, Brownsville, there's not a lot of resources there. The resources that the federal government sends to the border are overrun. And so shipping people off to those cities, those aren't stunts. Like this, People either have to not come into the country, but that's the administration's not going to do that. They're not going to secure and harden the border so that they don't come in at all. They're not going to... Uh, it requires them to stay in Mexico while waiting and then fund some kind of camps down there and campments so that people can stay in some kind of comfort until they can be adjudicated. No, you, you got to ship them somewhere. Uh, that's, that is the humane thing to do. And so sending them to the cities was not a troll, but folks, folks laughed. Folks on the right laughed. I get it. There's some comedy. I understand that, that it, can, it can feel like comedy. We, we are, and then it can feel just. There's a major problem at the border. We are sticking it in your face. You left-wing nuts up in in Martha's Vineyard, you talk about how compassionate you are all the time. Well, here's what your compassion is doing. It's causing this kind of influx of humans and putting them on Kamala Harris's doorstep. I get it. There was some laughing at the trollery. I admit this, though. I I didn't laugh. I'll tell you why in a minute. So we have the facts of the case and then the reactions. Folks on the right, laugh. This is good. I'm glad they're making a point. They're making a point in a comical way. I think it goes too far to laugh at that. It's still using humans as your as your punchline. I have the unpopular take amongst a lot of my friends. I don't like pranks. I think pranks are no fun at all because it turns a human into your punchline. Instead of that person being a person, that person is now just a is a tool for my entertainment. 
I'm going to do something to this person so that I can have fun and I can laugh at, at their expense. I think largely pranks are bullying and usually, usually mean-spirited and turns a human into a pawn for your own, own entertainment. And at large part, that's how I see two governors that I like, Governor DeSantis and Governor's, Governor Abbott, getting so frustrated with the process, knowing how wrong left the left is on this, went a step too far and used humans to make a point. Then, of course, while they went overboard, of course, the left did too in their histrionic, emotional responses, calling it human trafficking. And basically, as always is on the left, it's always Hitler. This is just something, it's very Hitlerian to move people to, into those spots. So I saw the facts and the reactions, and I ruminated on it. I came to the conclusion I just gave you. You you do, ethically, biblically, you can't use humans as a prop to make a point. Now, I also recognize these governors, while they might not have been behaviorally correct, they are positionally correct. Their position on making the people with power see the problem is a good position. Sending the problem to the people, stopping folks from fixing the problem, sending it directly to them, that's good. And that looks like sending folks trying to come to the country and who did so illegally or applying for asylum, all of those, sending, sending them to big liberal cities, liberal cities who won't give us any deterrence from people trying to come to the border. Yes, and they need, they need to know about the problem. That is positionally correct. But an important part of life is recognizing often you can do the right thing the wrong way. And anytime you use a human to make your point, use them as a pawn, you are doing a right thing the wrong way. So let me say out loud, with a lot of clarity, these governors are positionally, positionally right. They made the behavior wrong. It is, it is the left here, and anyone who's really loose on the border, they're the ones positionally immoral. When we bring the when we bring the Bible to this, we recognize that the Lord does recognize nations. I think you can see that in lots of different places, maybe even just the table of nations in Genesis 11. But the idea of a country having in good order, not having a chaotic system, you have a tracking of where your borders are, what you're responsible for, what the purview of a given government is. Those that's a good thing, and they should be enforced. That's a that's what good governance would do, properly wielded governance. And I look across those who, who seem, seem to disagree with that, and they are positionally wrong, positionally immoral about this. They lie about the border. They say it's concert, they say it's secure. When they don't lie about it, they just ignore it. Because it's far away. It's down there in Texas, down there in New Mexico, Arizona. Why do I care? It doesn't affect them. I think in large part they, they disregard the human cost of their supposed charity, their supposed sincerity and love for these folks. The fact that people think they can get into the country, the fact that they think they can get in and stay, it draws a lot of folks to the border in very precarious situations. I know we all forgot and just moved on, but it was this year that some coyotes, smugglers, had 50 people in the back of a semi-truck, left it in San Antonio, Texas, and they all just died. And we moved on. We forgot that's the case. Yeah, it, it stayed in the news for a day or two, 
you sent 53 people to Martha's Vineyard and you have to talk about that for a week. They, they disregard the human cost of having a border that attracts people. They disregard that people will do dangerous things, take, take dangerous trips to try to get here. They'll work with dangerous people. We are recognizing in the country that even though we sort of got our op- opioid epidemic under control through how we regulated doctors and their prescriptions of things, drugs are ravaging us. We have over accidental overdose, de- overdose dose deaths at a record. That what drugs often do in destroying people's lives is contributing to our high suicide rate. The American appetite for drugs is what in very large part funds the Latin American drug cartels. And to operate in a way where you don't see that and you ignore it, it's positionally immoral. Positionally immoral to have that border open. What I find for these folks who who now are having to have the, the the problem in their face at Martha's Vineyard and in these cities that they like to see themselves as virtuous because they welcome everybody. But they seem to not be willing to do much of anything. Someone else needs to do something. The federal government needs to do something. Maybe they'll pay some taxes and someone else can do the thing. But there's the positional immorality of not recognizing what it's doing to people at the border right now that live there. There are property owners losing collectively millions of dollars in dead livestock and lost crops that they were growing an actual just property. I forgot to mention that Border Patrol is now telling us that we are picking up migrants from around the world. Ukraine, Russia, Jordan, uh, Oman. Just recently I saw a report from just those countries. The, the world knows that if it can get to Mexico, it can probably get into the United States. It's ravaging us. Through people taking those dangerous trips, through all the drugs through the incentive to take to take those dangerous trips. I think I just said that. The right thing to do, the positionally right thing, is what the DeSantis's and the Abbots would want to do, and that is make the border very hard. That you're not getting in here. Not because we don't like people. I, I would ar- argue, you know, I'm, I'm pretty consistent on this. I want more immigration. A lot of you hate that. I want a lot more people to be able to come in properly and to be naturalized, to be patriotic, America-loving people to come be a part of the process. We need more. If we're not going to have kids, we're going to have to import the next generation of Americans because Americans won't we won't reproduce the next group, so we're going to have to import the next group. So let's go import them. Let's make it easier to do, and let's inculcate them with our values before they get here. So the right thing to do is address the problem, seal the border, fix the immigration system. And it, it is good that these governors have put the problem and the consequences of it right in front of the faces of the people who will not deal with it. But not like this. Sending them to those two areas, Mar- Martha's Vineyard and to Hamela Harris's front yard, that's a step too far. Descending them to those cities is a good step, but stunts like this, in the end, Use humans to make a point. So, summary. Biblical worldview on this. Governments need to get control of their borders. They need to control who's coming in and coming out. They, the folks that are arguing for this are, are correct. They are making the right argument. Unfortunately, a couple of them went too far, used humans as pawns, and they made the right point the wrong way. 
It's also worth always examining our own lives for that, where sometimes we say, well, I was right. The thing I said was correct. All right, yeah, I know how this feels. Sometimes how we say it, how we present it, matters just as much as to how we make the argument. So these men are making the right argument and started making it the wrong way. When we come back, I have a ton more I want to do with you. Uh, Also tell you about a recent speaking engagement I was invited to with some college students. I want to talk to you a little bit about what we said or what I said to them. I'll be back with more of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts in just a moment. Dare I even weigh in on this Al Mohler story where he got into so much trouble, it seems, for telling folks, telling Christians that they needed to vote, quote, the right way, or they're being unfaithful. I think I might get into that before the end of the show. That is, uh, that's, that's a hot one out there in Christian Twitter that I think we might need to tackle. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you listen to podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Glad to have you with us. I think I want to start here, though. I recently was invited to speak to some North Greenville University students. They had like a professional development project, and one of those is to hear from someone who might do some professional development or personal development, basically telling 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, here's some things you might need to know from a guy a little older than you. And I think it it ended up sounding like a greatest hits of the Corey Truax show. So I'm only going to do like a five or six-minute version of it, but I do want to give you that because most of you are a little older. I know I have at least five or six folks who are pastors of youth ministries who listen regularly. Maybe the other folks in ministry are not. I actually have an oddly large number of grandparents that listen. I think these are some things that this group of kids need to hear. And I don't know, you can mark the tape right here. I I said tape. These kids don't even know about tape. Uh, Mark the podcast or mark the broadcast at this moment. And maybe let me say it to them or you say these things to them as well. But here's some things. I think these kids need to hear, I, I think they are, I hope they are, rooted in Scripture as, like, their concepts that are scriptural and biblical, even if I don't pull directly from a text, which is uncomfortable for me. I would always prefer, just go grab a Bible and go, open your Bibles to this chapter and this verse, or this book and this chapter and this verse, and we're going to read and just expound on that, because that's where all the authority comes from. In these scenarios, it's more you know, Corey, we want to hear from you and what, what you're thinking about. So I, I think it comes from biblical places. We'll see how we can identify those along the way. Three things. Three things that I, th- I told them were important for developing to the men and women they need to be. Number one, discipline is always more important than motivation. I even would say to them, motivation doesn't matter at all. It's so fleeting. I see it charge people up for a day or two and just falls apart. I find this to be the case in the American church with some very gifted orators. There are men who are super compelling. Their personalities are powerful. And when those powerful personalities persuasively communicate to folks with a manipulative service structure and music structure, you can motivate the uh, mess out of people. But that endorphin rush, that, that feeling of being motivated to go, give more or love your spouse better or read your Bible more or spend a, have a more vibrant prayer life. That motivation, because it is primarily emotional endorphin-driven, it doesn't last to the parking lot. By the time that that person's hand touches their car, car door, they've forgotten it all. I compare it to how I usually feel about the big Marvel movies. They make me feel things. They'll give me all kinds of emotions. 
And it doesn't take me three or four seconds being in the car that it they just passed right by. It's like it never happened. And so motivation is fleeting. There are people I've seen, they get very serious about wanting to get their finances in order. Comes to week two or three of needing to input all their income and spending into that Excel sheet one more time, and they're just tired of it, and it's boring, and they don't want to do it. They get motivated to get their finances in order, and then that first big decision comes up to tell themselves no on buying something that they, that they want. And they get, un, they get undisciplined because they were just motivated. There's, no, there's nothing rooted deeper than that. There are people, I see it, they get motivated by some usually bad motivation uh, to get in shape. They saw a picture of themselves that they didn't like. They saw a picture of an ex that made them motivated to want to try to make themselves better. They get motivated sometimes by some really toxic things. And it doesn't take much to knock someone off that motivation. Just doesn't, it doesn't take long for them to go, all right, fine, yeah, I know I was supposed to stop at this calorie number, but I'm going to go to the, I'm, I'm going to have this brownie. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have this, I'm going to have two slices of this lasagna instead of the one, even though that one has enough calories for me for the entire day. Motivation doesn't do anything. Discipline does. Discipline's a dirty word yeah, culturally for us. There's two principles I want to give you on discipline. One, it's almost impossible to give up one good thing without, looking out into the future and knowing what better thing you'll get. So a brownie is so good. The better thing is health. So if you can imagine health or a fitness goal, it's easier to say no to the brownie. Financially, yes, it would be way more fun to have that night out on the town and spend those several hundred dollars that way. But you can only you can typically only deny yourself if you can look out in the future and go, but being out of debt is going to be so much better. You've got to find the better thing, imagine it, embrace it, find meaning in it, and then you're you're disciplined. So that's that's one. Find the thing that you're that's going to be better. Because if you just try to take stuff from yourself, you're almost always going to fail. You got to replace one good thing with a better thing. Number two, I know this sounds trite, but guys, I mean this. I've seen it work with some folks I've I'd hate to say work with, but like folks who have asked me in the past in work settings for tips on discipline. If if you'll it's, it's like every other muscle. If you don't work it a little bit, it'll never get stronger. So for those of you who are super undisciplined, you, you can't look out at a finished product. And listen, like for people like me, I have a super high level of discipline, a, a super high level of self-denial. No one needs to be like that. I'm not, I'm not trying to advertise that. But we all do need some discipline to tell ourselves no so that we can have the better things. So I'm talking the, this kind of small step. When you have that instinct that says, I actually do need to stop watching episodes of this and go to sleep, actually do it. Think about the better thing. The better thing is I'm going to wake up tomorrow feeling better and just go ahead and turn it off. You will have done a workout. That's an exercise. You will have made your discipline muscle stronger. When your alarm goes off and you are tempted to hit snooze, Work the muscle. Just get up. Just do it. Sit up. Do whatever you have to. Just get up. You'll make that muscle a little bit stronger. Say no to one dessert. If you eat seven days a week, you're eating seven desserts a week. Say no to one. You don't have to get to three or four. If that's your ultimate goal, fine. But start with one. Say no one time. You decide you're going to get disciplined on your Bible reading and you don't even know where to start. One chapter. Just, Just do that. 
30 minutes of listening to a sermon. Just do that. Until you get the muscle built up, then you're not going to you're not going to be able to go out any further. So, those two things. Be disciplined, it's way better than motivation. In part how you do that. Choose the better thing, always be thinking about the better thing over the immediate, putting off gratification. And then work the muscle to make it better. Two, these will go much faster because I talk about them on the show all the time. They're like main themes of the show. I uh, talk to them about the second principle, the second mountain principle that David Brooks wrote about, and really the book of Ecclesiastes is about, and I'm, I'm going super fast now, that we all uh, set a goal and often hit it. It's one of the most terrifying things to hit your goal. You got the title you wanted, you got the spouse you wanted, you got the amount of money you wanted, you hit a goal that you thought was really going to make you happy, and then, and then you don't. This is actually a grace of God. It's good that it doesn't satisfy you for long. It's good that it didn't make you ultimately happy because it drives you to look for something deeper. It's that very famous to me Tom Brady clip that I played before after he signed his $40 million uh, football contract, marries a Jeho- uh, about to say Jehovah's Witness, I meant Victoria's Secret, uh, Victoria's Secret model, and wins his third Super Bowl, and he gets up the next morning, and his sense was, is this it? This is, this is all that is? Because all I ever really dreamed about was being rich, winning championships, and burying a supermodel. And that's all I got. That's all. This is all, the feeling is not good enough. So it's that second mountain. It's when we, we climb our first mountain and look up and see that the real, the real mountain to climb is meaning. And meaning can only come in things that are eternal. And that's just loving your wife well, men. That's serving your church. That is being, being Christ to the world that does not have a lot of Christ-likeness in it. It's being faithful with your, with your resources, being a good steward. These things last forever. Those are the second mountain. So discipline over motivation, second mountain principle. And then another one I've given you a bunch. I call it my quarter theory of life, that uh, people put too much pressure on themselves in their 20s through their 40s to, to have a, just to have a, have a great time. Like they really feel like they have to uh, go out and tackle and enjoy life. Where my th- I have a theory that the best quarter of life is the ages forty to sixty because you still have your like your health mostly you have some vibrancy can do a lot but you're getting to that spot in life where you're getting out of debt and you stop caring about what other people think and you uh, for those of you who had kids somewhere in there they start to leave and so you get your your stuff back you get your space back and so don't feel like you're missing out when you look out on social media and see everyone else your age having all these experiences that you're not having. Where if, if you will defer gratification, it's part of, part of what we talked about with discipline, you can actually really earn for yourself an incredible life later because the the best times in life aren't right now. And listen, I'm about to be in my 40s. I mean, what am I? Oh, I'm 36. I'll be, like, I'm coming up on it. I firmly believe I've got this right. I'm, I'm only getting happier as the years go by, as those other things start to become true. So those are... I think I think things rooted in some scriptural ideas to have discipline, not just motivation, recognizing that there's meaning in only eternal things, and not not to get caught up in uh, the temporal, and that there's that we don't have to fight aging like this culture says we have to fight it. That there's actually some cool parts about getting older, and you don't have to embrace all the youthfulness all the time. All right, so that's what I recently got to say to them. And if you think it's a message for kids worth hearing, share it with them, or you know. Here's me plugging for myself again. You can go to CoreyTruax.com, CoreyTruax.com, and you can invite me to come speak to your youth or other people. We'll talk about stuff like that. 
Uh, any re- any responses to that, or if you think I rooted any of that incorrectly, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there, or you can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I think I'll do this one next, because whereas I feel pretty confident about what I, those things I just said being good things for kids to hear, you've heard me struggling with this on the show for a while now. There is... In... Florida and Texas, I think the two were, both states passed laws that would affect the social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, when it comes to their censorship practices. So these bills largely say things like, if you have uh, the Texas bill, the Texas bill says if you have 50 million subscribers or more, so it is only the giant tech companies. If you have more, more uh, that many users or more, you can't censor their censor them based on their viewpoints. So you can't make editing choices on your algorithm for what gets seen and what doesn't. So Texas passes a law, Florida passes something similar, and recently, though uh, those laws were challenged by uh, the Net Choice people, and there was another organization they sued and said you can't do that. It's, it's our First Amendment, right? We own these companies. We can do what we want with what we allow on our platforms. I'm sympathetic to that. You've heard me be sympathetic to that. If I built it, it's mine. And I will, have, I will have no government telling me what to do with my stuff. I built Facebook. Shut up and leave me alone. I will do with it what I want to. I built Twitter. You can shut up and leave me alone. The government can get out of my, this is get out of my front yard to the government. A Texas... Judge recently found, though, a, the Fifth Circuit, I think, or whatever that is down in Texas, they recently found in favor of the bill. So they ruled against those ruled against those companies uh, that sued Texas. Reading from a little bit here on the opinion, the judge wrote, In urging such sweeping relief, the platforms offer a rather odd inversion of the First Amendment. The First Amendment, of course, protects every person's right to the freedom of speech. But the platforms argue that buried somewhere in that person's enumerated right to free speech lies a corporation's unenumerated right to muzzle speech. I get his argument. He's saying the First Amendment applies to people, not companies. So that's a dangerous road to walk, man. I mean, this is, I think, part of constitutional theory, constitutional law theory, is what are, what are corporations ultimately? They're people. Someone started it. They have a board of trustees. They have employees. They're just people. Heck, we we use this logic when it comes to campaign finance. We I like the Citizens United decision. Folks on the left hate the Citizens United decision that largely has our campaign finance system treating companies like they are people. Because again, they're made up of people. I, I there, there there seems to be an arbitrary line here for me that I can't figure out. It's that because they're big, because they're significant, we can tell them what to do. But that's the only line, and that seems very tenuous. So why can't then governments come along to services or media with fewer users and start telling them what they have to do? when it comes to censorship or, or lack thereof. I mean, what what stops then, what stops then the government from being able to come to his radio and say, you know, you gave Corey 
an hour of, of time to talk about his views. And we go back to a fairness doctrine where, well, because you gave that person that hour, you have to give this left-wing person over here, this atheist person, this hour. Is it just because his radio doesn't have 50 million subscribers, 50 million listeners? Do you see how I struggle there? And I would love to figure it out because, you know, I, I want to figure this out. I think I'm starting to lean towards favoring a, a policy of not allowing kids on social media. Like, you have to have verified 18 and older, if not 21 and older. It, it's, it's time that we stop training their brains when they're very young to be captured by all these very powerful algorithms and systems. We protect kids all the time. Like, I feel comfortable about that. I mentioned here recently, I'm comfortable with the idea of showing that if government is coercing an action, then treating the social media company like the government is fair. So if the, if the government coerces social media to censor, all right, well, now we can take action against social media. But if it's just, if it really is just an internal decision from a company where they decide, we, we think this viewpoint should be minimized, and we think this viewpoint over here should be maximized, and there isn't external pressure from the government, it's hard for me to tell them no. That's the market's job. The market's job is then to come up with alternatives and so that every voice can ultimately be heard. You, you can hear me struggling with this. And so I am asking you, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, look for me, Corey Truax. Where do you land on this? On regulating the social media companies, what's appropriate and what's not, and whether or not these, you like these bills. Can we just tell them you can't censor? You're too big, you're too important, you're too significant to the national conversation. We are taking away your right as a company to censor and push forward the viewpoints that you want. I gotta take a break. When we return, I think I want to wade into these Al Mulder waters where he said, if you don't vote the right way, whatever that means, then you might be being unfaithful in some of the backlash he got. Uh, I think we'll wade into that pretty heavily when you return for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Al Mohler recently spoke at a conference where he said something that was controversial to some, and he's gotten some backlash. I want to give you the details and commentary on the Corey Truax Show right here on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're not familiar with Al Mohler, that's weird. He's one of the most prominent voices in all of American Christianity, certainly in Southern Baptist life. He probably is the highest name recognition person in all of Southern Baptist life. He is president of the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and led what was called the Conservative Resurgence in the late 90, or in the early 90s in the Southern Baptist Convention, really giving us a roadmap back to biblical fidelity and biblical faithfulness. So as you can hear from me, I have a great deal of affinity for him personally. He also has a fairly popular podcast called The Briefing. If you're going to listen to if you're going to listen to someone talk about the news exclusively from a Christian perspective, I can I can recommend him t- to you. He's not my style, but uh, in terms of broadcaster, but he, he's very professorial, super smart dude, knows a ton of Bible, uh, very orthodox. So that's Al Mohler. Recently, I'm reading to you now from the Christian Post. Um, here in a moment, I'll start reading. He spoke at a conference. Here's the headline from the Christian Post. Al Mohler suggests Christians who've quote, vote wrongly are, quote, unfaithful, and that the, quote, big battles are still to come. The story is, 
Prominent theologian Al Mohler faced online pushback last week after he said at a conservative political conference that Christians must vote the right way in the upcoming midterm elections. Uh, Of course, everyone wants a definition to the the right way. He spoke at the Family Research Council's Pray, Vote, Stand Summit in Atlanta. That makes me pause on that really quickly. I, it was at a church. It is a, it is specifically political in nature. Family Research Council is a organization that does politics, and I would argue mostly faithful to the Christian position on things, but is also very politically expedient. Sometimes they're so practical they seem to even appear to be giving in on some standards. And if this were a straight-up pastor, I think I would feel different about him speaking at it, but this is kind of Moeller's thing. He isn't a pastor of a local church. He is a Christian public figure who leads a university and is, I, I would argue, even more than the guy who runs the public policy arm of, of Southern Baptist Convention, Brent, Brent Leatherwood, I think his name is. Moeller represents vast majority of Southern Baptist thinking and I think Christian thinking in the country on political matters. And so it's. I guess I'm, I think I'm, I'm I'm comfortable with him speaking at this. Uh, he this is back to the story from Christian Post. He identified unborn human life, human dignity, the integrity of marriage, the integrity of the health of the family, and whether or not biological male means boy and female means girl. Uh, these are the these are the issues as Christians head to the polls. In some very real way, that's true. That's. The people who determine policy uh, are that will be determined in the midterm elections are going to make decisions on that. I I always hesitate at overplaying the significance of elections, and some of that language I think goes too far. Like that's it's not actually the case that what's at stake is the definition of male and female, or what's at stake is human dignity or marriage. Those those things are going to be fought in lots of ways. The the midterm election is one of the ways. I'm not saying it's not. It's important, but to the, I don't want any any effort that puts a lot of pressure and raises the temperature on one issue when there's lots of them. Uh, he then in the speech talked about how they're in a time of war because of Roe versus Wade's reversal means the big battles are just to come. Now here's where he got himself into hot water with some people. Quote, Moeller attributed the success of the pro-life movement in achieving its long-desired ro- ro- long-desired goal of getting Roe overturned to Christians making the decision to, quote, vote right. Quote, every single election matters, but every single election is followed by the next one, and faithfulness now is absolutely necessary to vote right. So, uh, of course, again, a, b- a bunch of people want to know, what does that mean? Does that mean just vote for Republicans? I'm going to read you one more, one more paragraph, I think, from this speech. He says, We have a responsibility to make certain that Christians understand the stewardship of the vote. Let me pause there. Yes. I think it's part of Christian discipleship to say, you happen to live in a system that calls on you to vote. The best you can, determining from Scripture and, your, and the Holy Spirit, your conscience, that's a a resource you have to use in some way, so don't frivolously not use it. I think that's a good message. Back to the quote. Um, 
Well, he says, you understand the stewardship of the vote, which means the discipleship of the vote. So that means letting the vote be be subject to being discipled by biblical thinking. He follows that with, which means the urgency of the vote. That that word all, I don't like that word. It's not, it's important to vote. I don't like using the word urgency. Then he says it's the treasure of the vote. And they, Christians, need to understand that insofar as they do not or they or that they vote wrongly, they are unfaithful because the vote is a powerful stewardship. It's a little bit more burden than I want to place on somebody. Sometimes, for some Christians, including me, sometimes it feels like the right thing to do is not vote. Or, for that matter, if, if he means by vote wrongly, vote for people who we know practically cannot win, I hope he's not talking about me, and I don't. I don't think he is. Those that would either not vote or vote for candidates that have very little chance of winning. Again, with the eschatology I've adopted in the last few years of my life, my, my thinking of the end of times, I I do think more and more about how the political system and structure of the country will need fundamental change. That it, it cannot. It's, it's this is unsustainable. Two really garbage parties. I mean, consider this, Christian. This is. Something for you to think about. It's very likely that there's a bill coming up after the midterms where close to 50 Republicans in the House and uh, close to 50 Republicans in the House and probably 10 or 11 Republican senators will support a bill that makes federal law gay marriage. We're probably, unless, unless something happens inside the Republican Party, we're probably only 4, 8, 12 years away from the Republican platform being affirming of gay marriage in affirming of homosexuality altogether. That's how that's how much the LGBT agenda has won. They have they have been so dominant that that's what's likely coming. And so you you got to ask yourself even that question then. Like right now for me it does seem fairly easy because there's the not participating part sometimes. There's a party who has at least on its platform a lot of biblical thinking, although very flawed people in it but has a platform that largely gives you biblical thinking and then you have a political party whose platform is un, not just unbiblical it's anti-biblical it despises the things of God and is a slap at every biblical principle it's a slap at Jesus himself it's a it's a document that is apparently welcoming enough that a lot of Jesus haters feel welcome there so there is the question well, right now the question's a little easier what comes when there is documented that the two major parties in the country have platform positions that are just antithetical to core biblical worldview questions. What what do you do then? What do we do then? But in any event, I'm kind of leaving the 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 molar things he said there. This vote's very important, and so it's it's important that you that you vote and, and that you don't vote wrongly. But he doesn't actually give any real definition to that. Next, there was the backlash, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, he got some on Twitter. I'll go back to the story. Uh, Moeller faced scrutiny on Twitter from some pastors, uh, other pastors, with uh, with some accusing him of Christian nationalism, oh gosh, or ignoring that black Christian voters tend to vote Democrat. I'll pull up one of those. Uh, Dwight McKissick was one, of the, was one. He is a pastor of... I used to know this because I, I mean, I've interacted with a lot of stuff Dwight McKissick's put out. I think it's of a church in near Dallas. 
And he's a, he's a black pastor, Dwight McKissick. He says, uh, if the vast majority of the Southern Baptist Convention agrees with Moeller regarding faithful Christians can only vote Republican. By the way, Moeller didn't say that. McKissick says, uh, if the vast majority of SBC agrees with Moeller regarding faithful Christians can only vote Republican, and they also believe in his version of Christian nationalism, Al Moeller has just declared the vast majority of SB, of the SBC don't believe black Christians are faithful. There are staggering implications here. Well, one, you, you took it a little bit too far, but I would say to Dwight McKissick, what you need to do is not evaluate the implications of what Moeller said. You should evaluate whether or not it's right and true. And if that's uncomfortable for you, that's a you problem. There's, he basically says here, well, I'm offended by that. You might be accusing people of something. How about you evaluate whether or not the accusation, if it's an accusation, evaluate if it's true. By the way, this Christian nationalism thing, I, I, I didn't do it on this show. I did it over on Dr. Beam's show with Austin Barker here recently, working through the Christian's relationship to the state with a lot of depth. If you didn't listen to that, I'd love for you to. If you reach out, I will give you a link to that podcast feed where we really try to figure out what the Christian's relationship is to the state, and I, I kind of struggle through it and trying to understand what it should be. But I, I did start with this. We start with the concept we want all nations to be Christian. The cute way I've come up I've come up with to say it is from the United States to Uganda to Uzbekistan to Ukraine, all across the world. We want a oh I left out Uruguay. That was it. And I knew I picked one from every continent. Um all over or almost every continent. All over the world, we want all nations to be Christian. And there seems to be two schools of that. One is win the people over create a Christian people and then a Christian people will elect a Christian government that will pass Christian laws and we're not listen we're not um, we are not shy about that that is what we want we want Christian peoples that demand of their governments pass Christian laws and have a Christian nation now, now we, I was contrasting that against a other group of people that would say whether you win the people or not get control and institute Christian policies and Christian laws because they're good for people Christian governance is very good. It's how humans will flourish the most. It's how families are going to flourish the most. And if if whatever you got to do to implement it, implement it. This thing that Dwight McKissick says of Moeller, says his version of Christian nationalism, just means this. If you think the if you want the country to be Christian, there there's a thing that I fell into as well for a very long time. Where we, what we really just wanted was peace and neutrality. But ultimately, every law is rooted in some kind of value system. I, I would even argue, as you could go back to the primary, primary sources back then, there were people arguing for Social Security from a biblical perspective. They were saying, this is the church history, as we take care of our elderly. And we, we've been in a situation where there's been some family deterioration, and then because so many people died in a war... So many sons died in a war, they couldn't come back and take care of their their families and parents. So we want to do that. Some would argue that some of our social safety net, not our welfare system, but our social safety net, unemployment as it was originally constituted with 13 weeks of benefits over your entire life and different uh, food assistance programs, you could might root them, you might be able to root them in a biblical thinking that it's a concession you know what, what the perfect was is that families take care of each other and neighborhoods take care of each other. 
But in these complex systems with families that fall apart, as a concession, you might use a government to do these things. They can at least be rooted at some level in their their motivation that we believe we believe people are made in the image of God and truly needy people, not lazy people, not just unmotivated people or undisciplined people, but truly needy people should not have to suffer when there are resources that you can muster and get them together. There's no policy, really, that does not come from some kind of worldview, and folks have been rooting laws and worldviews around the world forever. And so there was a time, a long time where I would say, I'm just looking for, I'm looking for neutrality. I want protection for the religions, protections for church, so that we can go do our work. But if we could just keep the laws neutral, that'd be it. But that's just not a, that's not a real thing. And I think guys like Dwight McKissick, and maybe a previous version of me, would have said that. Because it does, it does seem there's a poor mouth version of Christianity. I think it comes from the strain of Christianity that had that old... I get, uh, I, I will not name it because I don't want to offend anybody. But there was a, st- a string of theology that would say things have to get worse. Things have to fall apart. This is the devil's world. And until until the Lord comes back to bind him and to, to ultimately set up his kingdom, this is this is the devil's world. And so he he's going to do what he do what he wants. And I, I think that's what where, where McKissick comes and Moeller comes from the other direction, where we just declare with no problem right now, Christ is king. The American president isn't, the Russian president isn't, the Chinese dictator is not. These are all powers underneath King Jesus, and King Jesus has a people. He's here, he's given us a direction to occupy until he comes. He's given us a direction to, to spread to spread his gospel, to spread his word, to love our neighbor, to live in a way that's compelling and invites other people in. And around the world, as the church grows, as we're seeing it right now in Africa and Asia, we're seeing such large numbers of people come to Christianity that then leaders of the country convert to Christianity and ask, now what's that mean? How do, how do I be a Christian legislator or a Christian president? That's what we want in this world. And I think guys like McKissick don't quite get that yet, and that's the thing we need to be teaching. I've run all out of time. Thanks for listening to The Corey Truax Show. I'll be back with another new edition next week on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Until then, peace and love.